We've asked that the Lord might speak to us through his holy word. And so that's where we turn. Uh, We are continuing this morning our walk walk through the gospel of John. And we've made it up to John chapter 7, where we're going to read the first 24 verses this morning. In your pew Bibles, that can be found on page 1061. Or you can follow along as the words are uh, laid out on the screen behind me. But again, on page 1061 in your pew Bibles... From the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. After this, and again, we are now several months after the feeding of the 5,000 and the fallout that came from that. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not now going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, He has never studied, or saying, How is it that this man has learned learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do, God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath, a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Well, building up off of what Pastor Patrick did with Owen up here, uh, the reality is, and the foundational principle that we're going to be dealing with, is the idea that since we are limited human beings that can only see the world through our own eyes as we understand it, that all of the time we go about the business of making judgment calls about who other people are what the motives for their behavior are, and we make assumptions about what they mean and why they are acting the way that they are acting all the time. Think of just a few examples. You're out in public, maybe you're at a grocery store, at a park, and while you're doing your business, you look up and you recognize that someone's made eye contact with you and they're looking at you. And you now have to make a judgment call as to why. Maybe you assume that because you're so attractive, they're checking you out and they were getting a look. And as soon as they saw that you saw them looking, they turned their eyes away because they didn't want to get caught. Or on the other hand, maybe you're self-conscious. And so you assume that, oh, they're probably asking themselves, where did that person get their haircut? Or, man, I don't know if I've ever seen a nose quite that big in my entire life before. When in reality, the person may have just been looking at us thinking, oh, that looks just like the person I used to go to school. Oh, no, that's not them. And looked away. Or it can happen here at church. We finished up the worship service. You're walking around. And while you're in the middle of that hallway there, someone comes walking toward you. And you get all ready to say hello to them and initiate a conversation. And they walk right past you. And now you make an assumption, a judgment call as to why. Maybe this is evidence that they just don't care about you. And it proves you're just not welcome here in this church. And no one really wants to talk with you. Not realizing that they just saw their child dart around the corner. And they know that if they lose sight of their child, they're going to be looking for them for the next 45 minutes. And they've got somewhere to go today. And so they want to make sure that they go after their child. And it has nothing to do with you whatsoever. They honestly didn't even see you. But you could take it personally if you wanted to. Or one more example, again, in friendships or deep relationship, it happens all of the time. Someone seems a little bit more withdrawn. They're not as available as they used to be. And you start to wonder or assume. Maybe it's because they haven't ever fully forgiven me of that thing that we used to disagree about. Or, or maybe they're mad at me. Again, not realizing that it has nothing to do with you. They just have, uh, you know, maybe health issues in their life that they're not willing to share with others yet. Or there's family circumstances going on that's occupying an awful lot of their time in this particular season. And that's why they are a bit withdrawn. Again, we are limited human beings. We don't know everything. And so we make judgment calls about circumstances. And probably more often than not, we assume things that just aren't true. Which is why being humble about ourselves, being gracious with other people, and, and getting to know other people more de deeply, getting the information and the details from others always helps to inform our judgment calls. The more we know, the better we understand, the more information we have, the less just judged by appearances, and we are able to judge rightly.
Throughout our study in the whole book of John, and especially in this particular section of the book, the question that's been before us is, who is this Jesus? And the judgment calls that people are starting to make as they watch him do the different things that he is doing. And we will see more of that this morning. But once again, in the text that we just read, there's, there's an awful lot going on. There are a lot of details I wish I had time to get into and preach on. But the question that I've been struggling with and trying to answer is, well, what is the overarching theme that binds this all together? And the one detail that I truly wanted to focus on this morning is the growing misunderstanding of who Jesus was and why that was taking place. So let's start by identifying all of the ways that Jesus is being misunderstood. First of all, the text reveals the fact that Jesus is growing in his isolation. Uh, last week, we saw how the crowds had gone from thousands of people and had diminished to where even some of his disciples who had previously followed him were wandering away and leaving him. And that pattern of isolation continues into this text. We learn that he's isolated to the region of Galilee. He has to stay in the distance areas rather than going to the, the center of the nation of Israel in the land of Judea or especially in the city of Jerusalem because he knows there that his life will be threatened. He's also isolated in his relationships. Again, as we saw disciples leaving him last week, this week we learn about his own family members denying him. Now, in this interaction with his brothers, some commentators are pretty critical of their brothers, suggesting that they are basically just flat out mocking Jesus. They're suggesting to him, well, if you want to be so great, show yourself in public. Uh, go ahead. Uh, show off all of these things because uh, you, want, you should be uh, more public about your ministry. Other commentators are a little bit more sympathetic. And they suggest that like many of his disciples at this point, they didn't quite get it. And so they were just trying to push Jesus to be more public. But what we do know, however you look at it, is that it's clearly stated in Jesus's reaction and overtly stated in the narrative in verse five, that not even his brothers believed in him. The people that you think would know Jesus the very best, who would have the least reason to question his motives and his activities, also couldn't see who he truly was. And then we see all of the things that Jesus is getting accused of in this passage. Again, it depends a bit on how you read it, but many uh, that think the brothers are uh, accusing him, they see that they're claiming that Jesus is an egomaniac. You want attention? Go out and seek it, you, you, you uh, conceited person. But before he gets to the feast, we also see that people are talking about him. They notice that he's not there. And some say he's a good person, but others accuse him of just leading others astray. And that's actually a, a meaning-packed statement where they are basically accusing Jesus of trying to like start a cult. 
where they are leading people away from their relationship with God and, and toward an idolatry, which is why he is worthy of the death penalty, as was warned in the Old Testament. And all of this adds to his isolation. They accuse Jesus of being uneducated. Although they admire his wisdom, he shouldn't be teaching because he doesn't have the training. They accuse him of being demon-possessed and crazy. This is God's son here to redeem the world. And yet the view of the people is that he's on the other side. He's on the side of the enemy. He's doing the work of the devil in his statements. And going back to the last time that Jesus was in the Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, the miracle that he performed in healing that man who had been lame for 38 years, they still are accusing him of violating the Sabbath, therefore being a lawbreaker and a sinner. Again, all of that not just leading to further isolation of Jesus, not just false accusations about him and the worst kinds of accusations, but leading to them wanting to get rid of him. Despite their protestation in verse 19, clearly they are many who want to kill Jesus and are looking for the opportunity to get rid of this troublemaking, crazy, egotistical, cult-starting sinner of a man. For those of you that have attended our evening worship services as of late, you will recognize that this is part of the humiliation of Jesus of his lifelong suffering on this earth. He was alone. And as it says in verse 7 of our text, the world truly hated him. And we are seeing that as it said in John 1, that though he came to his own, his own people did not receive him. And that's the sad part. Because of this, the people were missing who he was and what was right in front of them, in their assumptions about who he was, they were unable to see who Jesus really was. And again, in our text, I think we get glimpses for a couple of the reasons of why the people were misunderstanding. Not just that it was happening and growing, but where that misunderstanding was coming from. The first thing was... Uh, that was continuing to get in their way uh, was their inability to G see Jesus for the Messiah that he was because they were more concerned about the Messiah that they wanted him to be. As we have been highlighting as of late, it was undeniable that Jesus was doing some very unique and incredible things that they could all see. However, in seeing that much of these miracles and understanding this is pretty incredible and this is pretty awesome. Maybe this is the Messiah. They took a huge leapfrog and they implied into that all of their ideas of what the Messiah needed to be. And how Jesus needed to act in light of that. And so again we see this in his interaction with his brothers. For those with that more sympathetic view of their challenge to go to Jerusalem and the Feast of Booths, they suggest that this is their motive. 
They see that Jesus has been doing these things and they're saying to him, you're not going to get any attention if you stay out here in the sticks of Galilee. There's no crowds out here. There's no people to see it. If you really want people to see what you're doing, go to Jerusalem. That's where you're going to get your crowds. In essence, they're trying to push Jesus into manufacture a scene that was going to take place months later in his triumphal, centri- his triumphal entry. They wanted him to capitalize on fame and popularity. But as he says, his time has not yet come. It wasn't time for that yet. And so he shouldn't be pushed into being that Messiah when that wasn't God's will for his life. We also see this issue of pushing him to be the Messiah they want him to be from the crowds at the Feast of Booths. Uh, This interaction is going to continue into next week, and so I'm not going to elaborate on this point too much because we also saw it introduced last week where they were trying to make him king, and then Jesus went away, and, and they struggled with his hard teachings because they didn't fit with their preconceived notions of what the Christ was supposed to be, and, and that conversation is going to continue into next week. But again, fundamentally, the idea was is they assumed that the Christ was going to act a certain way, was going to do certain things and because Jesus refused to act that way and to do those things well they weren't able to see Jesus as the Messiah that he was that was right in front of them so there is the struggle because of their preconceived notions of what the Messiah should be the other thing that we see in this passage that keeps getting in the way of the people being able to make a right judgment about who Jesus was, was their traditions. We just did this whole Lenten series on how Jesus fulfilled the feasts. And once again, as we highlighted, we are in a season where John is especially mentioning different feasts and tying in Jesus' actions to those feasts. And it happens here again. This is the season of the Feast of Booths. Well, when we preached on the Feast of Booths in the season of Lent, uh, we we made mention about how Jesus in that feast fulfilled the celebration of the good things that God had done from the past and the anticipation of what God would do for the people of Israel in the future. So I'm not going to re-preach that whole message. But fundamentally, the point is that because this festival had just become a festival, because it had just become a tradition for them, a time to celebrate the harvest, they lost sight of the spiritual significance of this feast. And because this had just become another tradition, another thing to do for these Jewish community, it wasn't the Lord's feast, it was the Jews' feast, as it's identified. And they couldn't see that the whole point of this feast was actually to point to the person who was literally standing right in front of them. They got caught up in the tradition of the festival, losing its meaning. Beyond the feast, their tradition said that in order to be a respected rabbi, you had to sit under the teaching of another proven and established rabbi. And because of that tradition, even though they listen to Jesus and are amazed at the intellect that he gives with his teachings, they dismiss it 
because he doesn't have that pedigree. He doesn't have a rabbi that he can point to that he learned from or taught him or established him as a rabbi. And losing that in their tradition, that gave them an excuse to dismiss everything that he was teaching and saying. Finally, we see it in their understanding of the tradition of the law. The point of Jesus' rebuttal at the end of our text about circumcision was to suggest that they always knew and they always practiced the principle that the greater law of circumcising a person on the eighth day superseded the lesser law of Sabbath observance, which is why they would circumcise someone on the eighth day. Well, if they knew that, and if they practiced that, why now are they objecting to the idea that God, that Jesus would heal a man on the Sabbath day and accusing him of breaking the law? And the only answer to that is tradition. Instead of the law being used to deepen someone's walk with God, to bring about a right relationship with God in a fallen and broken world, the law was now seen as an end in itself. It was a way to be able to easily identify the good people and the bad people in this world. And like their expectations of who Christ was supposed to be, these traditions ended up actually getting in the way of a proper understanding of who Jesus was. And again, the saddest part is in missing Jesus, they were missing the opportunity to find the life, the hope that he had come to bring. Now, all of that is okay at the beginning, when you're watching and you're trying to figure this all out and and put it together, when your understanding is limited and immature. But the time would come. The time would come when a decision would have to be made. Was Jesus the Savior, the Son of God incarnate? Or was he a demon and a sinner? Was he one to whom you should give your life in service and surrender? Or was he one who was such a threat that his life would need to be taken and he getting removed from the scene? Those are the only two options. And Jesus knew that the time would come when these people would choose. And the choice that they would make would be to deny him, to reject him, to turn their back on him, And to kill him. That time came for them. And that time will come for all of us when we have to make the choice. What are you going to do with this Jesus? And in making that choice, we face the same struggles. We live in a world that has all of these false ideas of who Jesus is supposed to be and what having a relationship with him is supposed to mean. And yet very often those ideas and those frameworks of the world look nothing like the Jesus in the Bible 
And the walk with him doesn't look like the walks that we see the disciples and the first apostles have with him and the way that that relationship affected their lives. And oftentimes as well, we have the traditions of the church and even the participation in the sacraments that become such a regular part of our routine and our habits that we forget the meaning and the point behind all of it. Many of us here this morning are blessed to have grown up in the church. And indeed, that is a great blessing. However, a potential danger in that is that we can assume that we've got Jesus figured out. All the way back when we were about 12 years old. Already by then, we'd heard all of the important stories. We'd memorized the important texts. We've gone to Sunday school and the rest was just kind of repetition. So we stop going to Sunday school and Bible studies. We stop reading the stories. We've read them before. We stop memorizing texts. And we stop allowing God to call us to something deeper, bigger, or something new. Because this has just become a tradition. So how do we solve the problem? Well, in order to judge rightly, instead of assuming and judging by appearances, we need information. We need to learn. We need to listen. We need to study the word so that you know Jesus as he is and not project on him our own assumptions, our own desires, and our own misunderstandings of who he is supposed to be. We need to get informed. Instead of seeking activity and tradition for the sake of tradition, we need to seek to do God's will, whatever that might be. God's will to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves and not make this mistake in assuming that, well, since we showed up to church on Sunday, we did what God wanted us to do. Check that one off the list. No, doing God's will is a regular, ongoing activity every day. And that should be our priority. And as Jesus says in our text in verses 17 and 18, when that is our priority, then we will understand him rightly. And then finally, we just need to ask God to continue to reveal himself more and more to us. To lead us into that deeper relationship. To point us what his will is. And when he does reveal that will, that our response be yes. I will do that. This morning, as we approach this communion table, let this be an invitation to remember anew. Remember anew who you are. Remember anew who Jesus truly was and what he did in order to forgive your sins and to make atonement for your mistakes, so that you can have a right relationship with him. And in remembering that, to encourage us to know Jesus rightly and to walk as he would have us walk. Toward that end, let's have a word of prayer. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I would ask that you would forgive us 
Forgive us for being so often like those that didn't understand you in the New Testament when we allow our assumptions, our false ideas, and even our traditions of getting in the way of truly understanding you for who you are and how you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And I pray, as we often pray, that our church would be defined by those who hunger for your word, who want to know you more intimately, more clearly, so that we can judge you rightly and walk with you more closely. Father, especially as we now participate in this sacrament, may it be that deeper invitation and a reminder of the covenant relationship that we have with you, signed and sealed in the blood of your Son, that not only forgives us of our sin and gives us hope for life to come, but calls us into a new life, even here, even now. So may this celebration Invite us into a closer walk with you from this day forward, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.